0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Tours Data Science podcast for an episode I've wanted to record for quite some time now. So there's this idea in machine learning that most of the progress we see in AI doesn't come from fancy algorithms or new neural architectures. Instead, some say, AI's progress has been driven by scaling up compute power, data sets and model sizes. And besides those three ingredients, nothing else really matters. Through that lens, the history of AI really becomes the history of processing power and compute budgets. And if that turns out to be true, then we might actually be able to do a decent job of predicting AI progress by studying trends in compute power and their impact on AI development. And that's why I wanted to talk to Jaime Sevilla, an independent researcher and affiliate researcher at the University of Cambridge's Center for the Study of Existential Risk, where he works on technological forecasting and understanding trends in AI in particular. Now His work's been cited in a lot of cool places, including Our World in Data, which used his team's data to publish a whole exposé on AI progress. And Jaime joined me to talk about his work, his predictions about the future of AI, and all kinds of other cool stuff like that on this episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. I'm really excited about this particular episode. I've uh, I've been following the, your kind of your work generally on trends in compute and the reasoning behind all your work as well, like for a, quite a little bit of time now. And I'm sort of one of these lurker fans of yours. I think it's fair to say, like on Twitter and, and other platforms. I'm really excited to to share this story with hopefully the the, the wider wider world or a larger part of the world. I would like to start about with with your motivation like getting into the space. Why why trends in compute? What is so important about looking at trends in compute at this stage in our in our life as a species, let's say.
1: One thing that uh, that uh, I am really interested in is the advent of advanced artificial intelligence. Uh, there's a plus there's like some reasons to believe that in the coming few decades we're going to see like Drastic advances in the, in the practice of artificial intelligence, which is going to allow us to automate more and more of society. is going to have like wide ranging implications from like many new jobs being created, other jobs uh, being destroyed, but also change, uh, changing the way we approach society and introducing like uh, new risks into the mix that uh, might radically alter society forever. Uh, one thing that I was uh, really interested in looking into is uh, trends in like uh, inputs into like machine learning systems. Like people have been are quite focused in like measuring outputs. We have like really good benchmarks in order to assess like how well are we doing in tasks in computer vision? How well are we doing in tasks uh, in language models? But uh, in the coming years, we have come to learn that there is like lots of gains uh, uh, that can be had just by taking like the systems of, that we already have and just scaling them up. Just uh, making them bigger, making them have more parameters uh, training them for longer and uh, like um, uh, using more data in order to train them. And while there has been like some work exploring like these implications, there really hasn't been like a historical survey of like exactly how many resources have been put in into like these systems. And this question is critical because uh, it's going to allow us to understand like all these progress that we have seen in the last two decades. Which amount of that is due to us uh, having like a smarter architectures, better ways of like approaching the problem of artificial intelligence versus us just having like better computers and more data to train these machine learning systems on?
0: Yeah, and, and that makes perfect sense. It kind of gives us a window into, well, a window into the future. It's the only, as far as I can tell, it's one of the very few, at least, ways we have of projecting what the future of AI might look like. We don't really know how to go from like an architecture or a concept of a model to what its capabilities are likely to be. We tend to be surprised when we find new capabilities emerging. So it's kind of, yeah, it is helpful to have like at least investment in in you know the amount of dollars or the amount of compute invested in these models as a, a hard number. So we can say, OK, you know, this much money or this many um, GPUs gets us this kind of model. And then what can we expect from the next? Uh, a lot of your work, though, is focused specifically on this idea of transformative artificial intelligence. And this term TAI for short, it means a lot of different things to different people. And it's a source of great debate within the community. I'd like to start with that then. So like, what is transformative AI? Or what is TAI to you? And, uh, and how do you Yeah, how do you think about it in, in the context of your work and research?
1: Right, so for me, essentially, the way that I think about TAI is that TAI is gonna be to us as like uh, the industrial revolution was like uh, the farmers that uh, that preceded us. Like it's gonna be something that's gonna be that's gonna enable like a new feedback uh, a new feedback loop in our culture, which is drastically gonna speed up the economy. And like I'm leaving this kind of vague because it's kind of like okay. We know that this is going to be a big deal. Like we know that, like being able to automate like a large part of our of, of our working society, like, uh, it, it, it really, like it it really like it really changes things. It allows you to it allows tasks to be done uh, like at unprecedented speed if you don't need like a human in the loop. To uh, that is like kind of like bottleneck uh, bottlenecking the whole process and more than that it's like okay well you know it doesn't make sense like i don't spend too much time thinking about exactly what it means
0: one reason i've heard for not not worrying too much about that and i'd be curious to get your take on this but um, essentially once you get to the point where we have genuinely transformative ai where where we have something like an industrial revolution but powered by ai progress is going to be happening so quickly that whatever set of criteria you use to define this new industrial revolution, if you slightly disagree with someone about those criteria, you're going to be off by like a week, or you're going to be off by like a year, let's say, and then the next level of the criterion is going to be reached. And so there isn't really that much fuzziness at the margins because change is going to happen so quickly anyway. Is that a fair characterization?
1: I think that is a fair characterization. I think that uh, that, uh, for most plausible definitions, that makes sense of like how society might be transformed like we are gonna find them to be like extremely correlated. They're gonna happen at the same time, as you say.
0: Okay. No, that, that's that's helpful, and I think for people who are less familiar with like forecasting, especially forecasting AI stuff, hopefully that that adds some context. Um, great. So so essentially, we have this idea of massively transformative AI, AI that transforms the economy, and and as you said, I mean, going beyond that is really hard, also because. i I wouldn't expect like a an agrarian society a member of an agrarian society to be able to predict what ipads would do what zoom would do and so on so we're going to be in the same position relative to our future selves in that respect at least um i am curious so like what are what are the um the the stages that have led us to where we are today then in the story of the evolution of AI that may eventually lead to transformative AI. So you, like you've studied that story and you're trying to use it to predict when this moment of TAI or this phase of TAI will happen. What are the, those phases? And, and like, can, can you give us a bit of a, a taxonomy of like the history of AI up to, up to today? So uh, in
1: terms of like the, what we have seen so far, what I've been doing with my colleagues is like collecting information about like historically important machine learning systems uh, since the fifties up until today. Right, and then like when you look at the when you look at the inputs that have gone into these systems, like uh, so far we have looked into the amount of parameters that like each of these systems had, and, like the amount of compute that was used to, to train the systems, like the amount how long they were trained for, in a sense. And uh, what we have found is that uh, in terms of parameters, it was like actually like uh, fairly less clear. The the whole story. There is definitely there is definitely like these uh, upward uh, upward trend. Which is undeniable, uh, but uh, it seemed to be like fairly uniform up until maybe like uh, 2000, uh, 2016, 2017, 2018. Like somewhere around that era, like something happened, and that some and the, something that happened is that language models started the scaling like way faster in terms of parameters than anything else that was going on at the time. Uh, this was like the this was like a, our first clue of like okay, there might be like some things, uh, there might be like uh, some changes that are happening in like, the history of machine learning that is changing the, the returns to scales of those systems. Like it's making it so that uh, scaling up those systems faster than uh, uh, there is an incentive to scale those systems faster because we're getting like, better and better, perf- uh, better performance continuously. Uh, we looked then at like, trends in like, compute and like, for how long the system was trained for, like how many operations in the computer it took uh, to train the system. And then like, we see like, a much neater picture Uh, We already knew from some previous work that there had been like these phase transition uh, somewhere around 2010. So essentially, before that, uh, the trend in like the trend in like the compute used to train machine learning systems. Essentially, it was doubling every 20 months. Uh, If uh, if you're familiar with like uh, Moore's law, so like Moore's law is like this empirical description of like how the the computing power of like uh, of like of like our laptops or computing devices uh, has uh, scaled over time, which also follows like a similar pattern. Like every tw- every twenty months, uh, roughly, you can say that uh, things got uh, computation got like twice as cheap. Right. right? So what we were seeing before 2010 is that, you know, like, it's not that people were investing more into machine learning. It's more like our laptops were getting better and better, uh, like researchers were using like a state-of-the-art laptop for all of their things. So uh, they were naturally uh, coming to use like more and more resources of computation. But something changed around 2010, which is that suddenly like this trend like speeds up before it was doubling every 20 months. And then, like afterwards, uh, we argue that it started. Uh, it started speeding up to doubling every six months or so. And uh, this is this is like really fast. This is like two doublings per uh, two doublings per year, which is like fairly crazy uh, if you stopped uh, to think about it. And uh, there might have been, like uh, there might have been, like a few reasons uh, for this. Uh, the most telling story is that around 2010 was like the time where like we realized the potential for like uh, deep learning systems to like, uh perform really well in tasks, uh, primarily in computer vision. Yeah. So, I'm
0: sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So it served uh, kind of like as a wake-up call for, uh f- for like researchers all over the world, being like, okay, there was like this paradigm that really was developed uh, in the past century about like beca- creating like this uh, neural architectures that uh, were just shown like a bunch of examples and through backpropagation they were like adjusted in order to get good performance and that really hadn't gotten anywhere like we had like a uh, lot of like uh, bespoke systems that were being developed uh, these days like sift which like were what you used if you wanted to have good performance in computer vision and now suddenly you have like this very general approach which is gonna which works on like a a wider ar- 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 array of tasks uh particularly at the time in computer vision which like uh now we suddenly really can't use because our computers have gotten like good enough uh to uh to do it. And uh people started investing like way more into like these systems, which meant that uh this trend of like, okay, before uh the 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 computing power that was put into machine learning systems was just the computer power you have at hand. Now people actually had a budget to like right. uh train their machine learning systems, and that budget got scaled up and up as uh, time went on, which meant uh, this rapid increase in like, the amount of compute that was being poured into like, this state-of-the-art uh, machine learning systems.
0: Okay, so to, uh, So if I understand correctly, at this point, we have two distinct eras that you've you flagged, or actually maybe three. Um, so we have first this phase where we have a, a steady, a flat academic budget. And thanks to Moore's law, compute's getting, yeah, as you say, twice as cheap every two years or so. And so you see, You know twice as much compute being used every two years but it's still only academically interesting during this period there's no real industry application to the tech or at least the industry applications aren't enough to get people to throw tons of money at it and then around 2010 we have this moment where there's an inflection point in compute budgets, and, and would you, so would you say that that was due to AlexNet specifically, or were there other things? Because I, I remember we, you know, when we talk about the history of deep learning, AlexNet is often cited as this like big aha moment. Everybody goes, oh, you know, the deep learning revolution, it started with AlexNet. Um, is, it, is that genuinely true, or are there models that came before that that sort of hinted at, oh, you know what, we should we should scale more uh, with the computer? Like, what's your sense of that, of, of AlexNet's role in that story? Right, so uh,
1: in, my, in my book, what characterizes the era of like deep learning is like three basic factors. One of them is uh, about the model size and depth. Like suddenly we started getting like uh, systems that had like multiple, uh, multiple hidden layers in like uh, their architecture and like had like way more parameters than what we had seen before. The second one is uh, the use of GPUs. So uh, people started experimenting with like GPU uh, platforms in order to parallelize uh, the training with like drastically uh, increase the amount of like uh, computing resources that they had uh, access to. And the last one is like performance. That was the point where like, yes, suddenly deep learning systems are start are starting to top the charts of, uh, in, in benchmarks, uh, like uh, CIFAR, uh, like, uh, like the image recognition uh, benchmark CIFAR, or uh, and, and, other, uh, and other tasks. Now, was Alex uh, was Alex Nest, uh, the the first thing that uh, did uh, all of those things? And the answer is like definitely not. Uh, like uh, we have seen like very large uh, uh, very large systems like as large as like AlexNet uh, since uh, the early 2000s. Like there's a paper by Biola and Jones in 2001, where like they train a system which is essentially as big as AlexNet. Uh, it's GPU-based training, the thing that uh, distinguished AlexNet, and it's like, well, also not, because uh, we have been seeing like uh, the use of like you, uh, the, this insight of like using GPUs to train machine learning models uh, had been around for like at least seven years by then. Like, uh, for example, like uh, for example, in 2005, there's this paper by Krauss and uh, other people where like they uh, they uh, show uh, some machine learning systems that were trained on like GPUs. And in fact, uh, I can remember right now exactly when like the CUDA, uh, the CUDA GPU framework was released. But that was definitely like a watershed moment in which like suddenly like GPU computing became like very ubiquitous and like really easy to program also for uh, machine learning applications. All right. So it's not, uh, so it's, uh, AlexNet is not a special in terms of model size. It's not a special in terms of like GPU-based training. Is it a special in terms of performance? And it's like, Yes, it significantly outperformed like prior techniques uh, in ImageNet. Now, it was not uh, the first benchmark uh, that had been broken by uh, yeah, that had been broken by a deep learning system. Mm. Like uh, the other example that uh, that uh, that uh, predates it is uh, there is this paper by Sir San and others in 2010, which uh, makes substantial improvements over the previous state of the art uh, on MNIST, and there is like also uh, this paper by Mikolov. Where like they also uh, break, break like an important uh, NLP uh, NLP task, the Wall Street Journal task. So AlexNet, uh, it was as big as things that came before. It had all uh, it had been trained on GPUs, but also things that came before. Uh, like sure, it broke like a really important benchmark, but there were other important benchmarks that uh, were broken uh, that were broken like like two years before, around 2010. All of these factors combined. Uh, kind of like made me think that, okay, this is not, uh, AlexNet was not like a watershed moment out of it itself. It was part of like a larger trend. But what it's undeniable is that uh, AlexNet uh, gathered like uh, a lot of like academic recognition and uh, also outside of academy. And uh, I think it's quite plausible that it, that it acted as like this uh, wake up call where like people were like, oh shit, it, this works.
0: Okay, interesting. So So that was what I was gonna ask next was like, you know, given that that seems to be the case with AlexNet, why why is AlexNet held up as this ultimate exemplar of like this great watershed moment? So your assessment would be something like it's it has to do with people's reaction to it. Perhaps some in some sense the marketing around it was just really good. Do you think that's too reductive, or is that like roughly accurate?
1: I think uh, I think that's uh, basically correct. Uh, like. I'm... It's undeniable that ImageNet was like a, a very important benchmark. And it was more important than the benchmarks that were broken before. But uh, like, in a sense, this gives me hopes, right? Because uh, I kind of have to, like, you could have predicted AlexNet. This uh-huh. is what I'm getting at. Like, right. if you were in, in 2010 and you were squinting your eyes really hard, you will have seen like all these neural, uh, neural network papers that were breaking like this Wall Street Journal task, this uh, MNIST task, and you will be like, Hey, something is happening here.
0: Interesting. Okay, so so that's actually, it's especially interesting given the next phase in the evolution of machine learning because I would make a similar mistake. So in 2020, OpenAI came out with GPT-3. Um, I can describe it to you the way I would naively have described it before this conversation as the first uh, the first pseudo general purpose AI, the first AI that was trained for one narrow task like autocomplete and turns out to be capable of a, a very wide range. I mean, obviously we see transfer learning in other contexts and images, for example, but this is really where we see zero shot learning in all its glory for the first time translation, coding, even essay writing, uh, basic web design, all those things that this one system can do, despite being trained to do something really qualitatively different. Um, so. My guess is you're going to come back to me with the same uh, similar story as Alex said. Hey, you could have seen GPT three coming. I'd love to explore that. It, it, first off, if you agree with that, maybe you won't. But like, could you have seen GPT three coming? And if so, like, what were the what were the warning shots? What were the things that should have had us going like, oh, okay, you know, scaling does make sense.
1: Right. So uh, here there is like a uh, there's like a uh, this very interesting uh, story, right? Like we have seen this transition between like pre deep learning era to like the deep learning era. Now, what I want to talk about is uh, what uh, the next transition that uh, we uh, that we argue exists uh, in our paper, which is the transition between like the deep learning era to like the large scale era to the uh, to uh, to the point where like industries started investing like millions of dollars into like training these uh, very large uh, machine learning systems in the hopes of like getting like uh, increased performance. And uh, when we were looking at the parameters, like uh, it became obvious to us that, okay, there's like a, uh, uh, around two, uh, 2017, 2016, something around there, like uh, param- parameter uh, language models started getting like much, much, much bigger. And immediately the thing that came to us is like, okay, this is Transformers, right? Like Transformers uh, came out in like 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, they quickly proved to be, or, like a different regime of scaling and uh, it became like much more advantageous to like scale them up as fast as possible, and that's what happened. Um, now I'm not so—I uh, am not so sure about that because uh, when we look at compute, uh, sure we see that uh, language models like have stolen the thunder that uh, this last uh, years. But really, like the first system we see that uh, came close to that uh, regime of scaling is uh, some reinforcement learning systems that were spearheaded uh, by DeepMind. So things like Alpha, AlphaGo uh, by Gitman and Google, generally. Like Alpha, uh, AlphaGo is like uh, one example. Uh, the Google uh, Neural Translation Machine is another example. Like for me, this is the point where like, uh, companies realized that they could like, scale things up a like, hundred times bigger than they had been done before, and like, actually get good results out of that. So they just went and did that. Uh could we have uh could we have from this uh predicted uh GPT three? Uh I was just still like very, I was personally like, really, really shocked about like the whole GPT three thing and like the whole rise of like language models. I was like quite bullish on thinking that language modeling was like what I would call like an AI complete uh problem. It was like a problem so hard that like we were gonna get like general intelligence before we actually got like good language modeling. I'm like well reality has proven me like very very wrong
0: yeah that in itself is, is an interesting uh an interesting aspect of all this the link between scale the link between um architecture and then the actual capabilities that are achieved by these models what's easy what's hard it, it seems like i mean this is to me one of the the interesting aspects of your work it allows us to start to notice when our intuitions were just completely wrong um, now, wh- one thing I, I do want to touch on before we go more into that direction, because I think there's a lot to talk about when it comes to kind of capabilities and linking those to scale and, and other things, uh, it seems like you mentioned a couple times, you know, y- y- your assessment of doubling times for compute power, for example, and, and your thinking and, and your, your analysis and, um, and, and you're hinting in that that there might be disagreement, there might be other perspectives, too which I guess to me, I always found interesting because I would have expected this to be a very naively like straightforward thing to calculate. You know, we have a bunch of leading models and they have a certain amount of compute power consumption. And then we start to draw straight lines on log plots and and there's our doubling time. Um, So can you explain, like I'm I'm sure I'm wrong by the way but I'd love to understand how I'm wrong.
1: Absolutely. So uh, let me talk about uh, the work that came before us in terms of like compute trends. Uh, the, the the main piece is this article by OpenAI around 2018, where like they did, they went through the same processes as us on like a smaller scale. They like uh gathered the amount of compute that was used to train like uh around like 12 to 18 uh state of the art machine learning systems throughout the years, and they just they plotted it and they were like, okay, this is the this is the line. This just a regression. And they got, like a, they got, like, a doubling time that was, like, way faster than us. Just like, uh, our, time, uh, our doubling time was also really fast, like, uh, six months. Their, uh, their doubling, the doubling time that they found is, like, half of that. It's, like, every three months, things were, like, doubling, right? And then what happened? Well, two years went by. And, like, their prediction was, well, the, their implied prediction, right? Like, this implied trend, like, it stops flat. Uh, it stops flat. Like, uh, it just doesn't go on. It's like, we, uh, suddenly, we hadn't seen like a doubling uh, since 2018 by 2020. And there is, in fact, like uh, this blog post by Alex Lesov, where like uh, he uh, he expands on like the work of like uh, AN Compute, and like a few points and being like, uh, the trend stopped right when you wrote the blog post.
0: Right. Now, this is, uh, are you referring here to the scaling laws for neural language models paper? I think that was 2019 though, wasn't it?
1: No, no, no. Uh, this is like a, this is a, a oh, blog post that the wrote. Sorry, yeah, yeah. AI and compute. That's okay. right.
0: That's right. I then want to bring in that that scaling laws for neural language models paper, which came out in yeah in 2019. I think by the time they wrote it, GPT three pretty much would have been built uh, internally. In retrospect, because I think they they released the paper for GPT three sometime in January, and I think the scaling laws paper might have come out in like very late 2019. Um, so, so maybe they had some, some new insights based on GPT-3, but do you have a view on like on that paper? Did it cause you to change your perspective? Is it consistent with your analysis or? Uh,
1: absolutely. So, uh, the paper on like scaling laws is essentially like the whole motivation for like this whole project. It's kind of like the proof of concept that like scaling matters and it's like really important. So uh, kind of like what we, what we see is like a, a, our work is like complementary to what's happening in like, uh, in like uh, the scaling law paper in there. Like they were running like a series of experiments with like uh, some uh, with like some systems. What we're doing is like we're looking at what has happened historically. and like see like given the insights that we found in like that paper and like some other papers that we're studying uh, returns to scaling whether we can explain how much of the progress we have seen in the last two decades is based on uh, just this is scaling, things are getting bigger and faster versus uh, us having like better architectures. The trend that uh, OpenAI had found when like they look and they plotted like this line of like uh, up to, uh, it was doubling like every three months. And then like Alec like continues that and then it just doesn't grow. And like, you know, like between the biggest system in like 2018, which is Alpha, uh, AlphaGo, uh, wh- wh- one of the versions of AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero, and uh, the biggest, the the biggest uh, system in like by two, uh, 2020, which is like uh, GPT-3, is like actually GPT-3 is smaller than AlphaGo Zero. So it seemed like oh the trend has the trend has a stop, but like uh, really I think that uh, this is like an illusion that is being caused by like this uh, this discontinuity that we had in 2016, like this point where like Suddenly, companies have started uh, uh, investing like a hundred uh, times more. So then, what's going on is that uh, if you just look at like the uh, at like the biggest systems overall, you're gonna catch like a lot of noise, and that's gonna make it so that uh, so that uh, the trends that are apparently there like really are not there because it, they are just uh, co- they just consist of like these few outliers and include like these large discontinuities. So you need to like take a, a bigger look uh, to look for like uh, the trends that are there. And like even having like that bigger look, you're still are gonna have, uh, have uh, points like in 2016 where like suddenly things are skyrocket, are skyrocket up by like uh, two orders of magnitude. And uh, that's something that happens, discontinuities uh, happen.
0: What this makes me wonder is, is where these trends would start to break down or like what might cause these trends to break down in the future?
1: So uh, distance, uh, the distance right now are the combination of like two factors. One is uh, compute getting cheaper as building like better uh, uh, infrastructure for computing the second is uh investing going up right investment going up like industries uh primarily industry at this point uh, is uh more and more interested into having uh, putting like millions and millions of dollars into training these systems uh these two these two trends like follow different mechanics and may break down uh because of different reasons uh for like the for like the compute trend uh this is like moore's law People have been claiming that Moore's law is gonna die like very soon eventually it has to die like it cannot go on forever, but it's like really hard to find out what is the point at which like uh, actually uh, the things break down uh, like we start to be we stop being able to like scale up our systems like uh, there might come like uh, new new ways of conceptualizing like computation that might allow us to like uh, keep squeezing the, uh, keep squeezing, like, uh, the, uh, this trend, I, like, keep our, uh, it's kind of like a sort of, like, self-fulfilling prophecy, where, like, people kind of have, like, this, uh, it, like, my, my impression is that internally, like, uh, Harvard companies have, like, this impression of, like, this is the goal to meet, and they put, like, a lot of effort into, like, making it. At some point, like, you know, physics says, stop, you cannot go on. But for the time being, it hasn't seemed, uh, it hasn't sound like, uh, has slowed down a bit, but it's still, it's still happening. It's still uh, decreasing exponentially the price of compute. And I would expect it to increase exponentially, at least at the very least for the last 10 years and like possibly for, and like quite possibly for longer, even for how long it has uh, held up so far. Now, the second trend is about investment. Uh, like investment is more complicated because uh, well industries, uh, industries have a budget, and they can siphon like part of their r and d budget towards uh, AI. and uh, like that's essentially what uh, has been happening. They also have like larger revenues that they can put into this, but there comes a point where like you know when uh, AI is like ninety percent of their research budget, you just cannot yeah. go on without like a state support or like uh, or like something else. Uh, when, is, when are we going to reach that point? So my colleague, uh, Tamay Basiroglu, actually uh, repeat, uh, performed an analysis based on a blog post by Ryan Carey from a couple of years ago. And uh, he essentially tried to compute, t- tried to put like an estimate on like what is going to be the reversion point, where it's going to be the point where like this trend of like uh, increased investment is going to stop. And uh, like the driving force between, uh, between uh, progress from now on, is just going to be like more slow. And essentially, like we, he uh, he was estimating, like you know, under some reasonable assumptions about like how much money cool uh, cool uh, companies like possibly spend on AI R and D, like maybe in like it's it seems definitely plausible that it's gonna held up for like ten years uh, the current trend, and then like afterwards it's like extremely uncertain like what's going to happen if they're gonna like hit the ceiling. And just uh, stop increasing their budgets. If like state actors are gonna like come in and like uh, keep uh, investment up, uh, we know
0: one interesting factor in that analysis too is like if companies start to scale up their uh, their compute budgets in that way, eventually you do get systems like GPT three that can create so much value themselves. Uh, that it pays for that compute. And so you have this positive feedback loop that has no termination point, or at least no tr- no clear termination point. You know, arguably we're already seeing that with GPT-3. There are companies that have raised tens of millions of dollars that are really just like a fancy wrapper on top of GPT-3 or maybe, you know, AI21 Labs products or stuff like that. And so, you know, it, it's like, Ten million dollars. Well, that's already the cost of making gpt three. So, so we're in, in a way we're already in that regime, um, or maybe we're not. I mean, do, do you think that we may be already at this point where we're kind of closing that loop?
1: I think we are. Like one of my lean hypotheses to explain like this discontinuity that we saw around two thousand sixteen is uh, essentially yeah, a point where like industries did the calculation of really, like okay, we can afford to put the money this money in because this is going to generate like so much revenue. And uh, for me, like, the leading example of this is not GPT-3, it's like uh, DNMT. Like uh, DNMT, the Google Google Neural uh, Machine Translation System, was, like, one of the early examples of, like, a really, really large-scale machine learning system that broke with the previous trend and that had, like, a huge uh, economic implications.
0: Okay, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, And actually, okay, so now we've talked about this idea of, of trends in compute. One of the things we haven't talked about is how we tell when a particular level of compute leads to a particular capability or a particular situation in society. This TAI threshold, transformative AI threshold that you've been trying to kind of project and predict. Um, and one of the techniques that you've used to actually land that plane and figure out, okay, you know, how do, we, how do we get capabilities from these systems? How do we predict capabilities from scale? Is to lean on this framework of biological anchors in uh, predicting transformative AI. So, could you explain what biological anchors are and how they relate to some of your work?
1: Very badly, but I will try my best. So, essentially, uh, within my group, we have been mostly been focusing on like uh, inputs, but uh, some of people, uh, some people on this area that have in high regard uh, have been figuring out like what to do with like the estimates that we're providing or have come up with like their own models where like uh, extrapolate these trends strands that try to forecast uh, uh, different levels of performance. And definitely so far, like the most intricate piece of research and the most complete piece of research uh, that we have seen is Aya Kotra's uh, draft report on a timelines where like she comes up with like some generally useful concepts in order to try to understand uh, how much compute will be needed uh, to train uh, a transformative uh, machine learning systems. So uh that's the that's uh the this uh by that's uh, that that there's like this anchor's uh report where like C comes up with like six different ways of estimating like uh what's gonna be like uh the, the amount of uh, operations that you're gonna need in order to train uh, these transformative uh systems. And like three of uh, three of them are like essentially like biologically based. There is like estimations about like, you know. So far, the only example of like artificial general intelligence that we have is humans, right? right? And like, uh, what? uh, Well, not artificial, but general intelligence that we have, and uh, so it provides us kind of like uh, with like a a very crude estimate of like, well, an upper bound on like how many operations you need in order to create intelligence. And there is like multiple ways that uh, you can go about thinking like how many operations did it take to uh, make a human? Like uh, one, one thing that you can do is just go like, okay, like a human like is born and then like it takes like some time for it to like le- absorb like the culture to like learn how to speak, how to write, uh, how to code, how to do different things. And uh, like, uh, it, it's gonna take them like, okay, probably like 20 years to become like a functioning adult of like uh from like a baby that knows nothing to like a general intelligence that can perform like a wide array of like economic tasks. So you can like sort of estimate like okay how many operations does it take in your brain to uh to uh do all that learning and that's gonna be like a sort of like estimate of like how much it takes from like baby level artificial intelligence to like human level artificial intelligence. Um as that uh, as this, there's like a couple other ways that you can go about it because you can say like, okay, but babies have already like a lot of like built-in machinery, and like maybe this is not uh the best uh the best way of thinking about it. And uh maybe you can go with like a, the most extreme estimate that uh she provides is like going like okay, how much did it take, how many operations did it take to like evolve a uh, human? Right. How many operations if you see the earth as like this giant computer? Has been running like this evolutionary algorithm for like uh, for like billions of years. Like how uh, how long did it take to uh, actually create uh, human level intelligence from that? And she also provides uh, that uh, that kind of estimate. And those are the biological anchors, right? Uh, for me, actually, the ones that are more interesting are not the biological anchors themselves, but uh, the anchors are based on like uh, this concept of like horizon length. So essentially what uh, I, uh uh proposes is that uh, systems where like the reward is like farther away temporally than the action are going to be like harder to train uh that uh, system for like the reward and the action is like uh, closely paired together and uh which makes a lot of sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh the one of the hardest problems in like um, in like machine learning is the attribution problem like trying to attribute like okay this reward I'm getting like which action is
0: it due and and i guess this also i mean it aligns to some degree with the evolutionary anchors perspective just in the the intuitive sense that when you look at like animals we tend to think of as stupid they tend to be they tend to act on instinct in other words they tend to respond to immediate stimuli and respond to it in an immediate way there's very little plotting and scheming going on in the brain of an ant for example Whereas when you look at, you know, dogs, maybe they can learn to train their owners in certain ways or, you know, trick them into doing certain things. So there's a little bit of foresight and planning, monkeys more so and maybe humans even more so. Um, so I guess there's a sense in which they are sort of aligned, even if they, they take different uh, different directions.
1: Exactly. That's it. So essentially, what uh, what Aya did uh, was uh, coming up with like an estimate of like, okay, so far we have trained like some reinforcement learning systems that uh, are able to act in, like these uh, time horizons, able to act like so many steps into the future, and then like she comes up with like an estimate of like, okay, how many steps will it take to uh, uh, will it take to like uh, create a company, for example? Like this is an right. example of a task, right? And then she goes like, well, uh, this is like a time horizon of like a year, the amount of the steps uh, that's, that uh, this is going to involve is like such and such. And then like, uh, given that, I see like from the previous data on like how much, how much compute did it take to train like these previous machine learning systems? We kind of have, uh, we kind of have like a rough estimate of like what, how many operations does it take to train a system that has like a certain horizon length? So now with like these, uh new horizon lens for this task that we haven't automated yet, uh, this could be like a, a plausible estimate of like uh, how many operations will it take to automate those as well.
0: So through that lens, I guess this makes me think of the GPT-3 context window or the context window of language models as being this very important number, the sort of amount of text it can keep in mind at the same time as it predicts the next thing. Uh, is that like... Do you think that's a correct way to think about it? Like the context window might have a lot to do with this idea of planning ahead and and time horizons?
1: Absolutely. I think this is one of the main reasons why right now, like I don't see GPT-3 as like uh, something that can scale up to general intelligence. Because you do really need to be able to like create loops in your intelligence to be able to like pay attention to things that happened like a very long time ago in order to like create that. Now, uh, this is not to say that GPT-3 cannot be like a critical component of like artificial intelligence. Like, I have been actually like very shocked by like some kind of like by, by hybrid approaches in which like GPT-3 has kind of been put into like a loop in which like uh, it is able to produce things like mathematical proofs, like code, and like right. that code is executed. And we could see maybe like a, uh, uh, like this uh, at the beginning of like maybe some sort of like a loop system in which like you put uh, you, you ask GPT three to provide like a piece of code, the code is executed, that provides like uh, and that provides context for like the next call to like a GPT three GPTX uh, like
0: interface. Interesting. So, and that actually vibes, I guess, with the idea that we have GPT 3 taking up and, and historically ai has done this too even going back to like the mid-2000s it, it almost starts with like taking away some of the most menial tasks so like Excel spreadsheets remove things that require like thinking on the order of a couple of seconds. I don't want to have to multiply all these cells together, Excel will do it for me. Then the next step is like, I want this to do, you know, calculate my p-values to so do even more sophisticated operations that save me more time. And gradually the human gets to zoom out more and more, think more and more. Well, we we say often think more strategically, but really think over longer time horizons as the the goal or the responsibilities of this AI start to expand. Um, and so, when we look at some of those loops, I guess you probably have, when we talk about theorem proving with something like GPT-3 or Gopher or things like that, I guess you probably have the human doing almost strictly long-term thinking, um, and, and then the AI picking up the slack. Is is that how you're seeing those loops?
1: Maybe I definitely think like uh, in the next in the next five years, uh, what we're gonna see is GPT, uh, GPT-X systems, like uh, language models, uh, like different machine learning systems as so kind of like an augmenter of like human intelligence. Or like there's gonna be a human in control which is gonna be prompting the machine learning system in order to like uh, produce uh, to uh, to produce uh, text to produce code that then like the system is uh, the human is going to bet and decide uh, what to pick I actually wrote the abstract uh, for my paper using gpt3 part of it and I expect that this is going to become, like, a way more common occurrence uh, in the future. Uh, I see this as different from, like, what I was saying before. We're like, what I was saying before, like, don't take it with a grain of salt because this is, like, me uh, who, uh, who uh, who's, like, a, a relative outsider to, like, the nitty-gritty of, like, actually training the systems, like, trying to think about, like, how you could scale GPT-X uh, systems to, like, uh, general intelligence and be, like, not very convinced
0: about that. Well, so this is actually interesting because um, there's a lot of debate in the forecasting community, as I'm sure you know, between people who are like who adopt this inside view perspective who say, look, the best way to predict trends in uh, in AI capabilities is to talk to the people who are actually building these systems, as you say, doing the nitty gritty work. And then people will say, no, actually, the outside view is usually better because when you're on the inside, you kind of can't see the forest for the trees. And you, I mean, I've I've seen this in in startups, right? Where like it's it's a classic thing in Silicon Valley. You have investors who have like built, let's say, an ed tech startup. And th- because they've built an ed tech startup, they know all the ways that ed tech startups can fail. They know all of the the horrible list of things that need to go perfectly right in order to make this work, and so they'll never invest in an EdTech product because they just see all the reasons it can't work. But then they see a product in a completely other domain that they know almost nothing about, and they get really excited about it, and often they make really good bets as a result. So paradoxically, your experience can actually detract from your ability to make good predictions. Um, I wonder how you see that interaction, acknowledging, obviously, we, we all have our biases, we all come from one perspective or another. As you mentioned, if you're more on the outside doing less building, maybe that'll default you to that side. But how, how do you think about that, that trade-off in the context of your work?
1: Absolutely. So when I think about uh, expanding, uh, predicting trends, in, well, predicting like what's going to happen with artificial intelligence as with new technologies in general, like, I say that like, there's two things here. There's like trends and there's discontinuities. And like uh, trends are often, are often like surprisingly robust. Like uh, there's this work by Air Impacts where like they try to set up uh, to try to look for discontinuities so they could understand better in which conditions do this uh, technological discontinuities happen. And like uh, among like all the examples that they looked at of technological trends, like actually they didn't find that they, they found like Okay, I'm gonna say they find like a lot of discontinuities. Like in around like 30% of like the trends that they looked at, uh, they found like a discontinuity. But they were explicitly looking for uh, for discontinuities. So this kind right. of like uh, implies that like discontinuities are like somewhat rarer than like one might uh, naively think, and you can actually get like uh, pretty far ahead, which is like plotting a, plotting like a straight line on like what you have seen uh, so far. Now, uh, if you want to go the next level, then you need to account for the possibility that uh, there is going to be discontinuities, like the one that we saw in like 2016 with like uh, compute and capabilities of machine learning systems. And for those, like uh, the best you can do is like having like a uh, having like an inside view system, like trying to understand what are like the driving forces uh, behind like the different trends that you see, and uh, like trying to understand like how incentives might change in such a way that the discontinuities happen or like how the uh, how some certain like critical points might be uh, might be uh, reached where like uh, suddenly things uh, go faster one interesting insight is that you, it's quite uh, like we should naively expect like discontinuities to uh to surprise us on the positive side because if a discontinuity happens on the negative side like kind of like that's going to be that's going to be rolled over by the trend right like right. the trend is still going to go on unless like whatever are the forces like driving the trends like uh subside but normally that's going to be uh, normally that's going to be like uh something more gradual and predictable. Uh if you really want to if if you really want to uh so so kind of like as i see my work is providing like an upper bound on like uh how uh, how far away intelligence can be. And then like i don't have that much to say being like okay like i'm pretty i'm i'm somewhat confident that by the end of the century like we will have the resources to train like artificial general intelligence. As an example, like don't take this uh, this figure literally. Yeah. But then I'm not gonna have that much to say, being like, okay, it might come like 40 years earlier. We don't know. Something something unexpected might happen.
0: And actually, that ties into something we started with, which was this question of transformative artificial intelligence. And we tried, we talked about that definition. And then you just raised in this context artificial general intelligence. And when we, when we were talking about biological anchors, it sounded like we were talking about artificial general intelligence as well, just because we were focused on what would it take to replicate the human brain rather than what would it take to transform society. I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you think that there's a... a f- a functional or important difference between predicting TAI versus predicting AGI, predicting transformative AI versus predicting general intelligence, or are they going to roughly come at the same time and it basically won't matter?
1: Right. Uh, like, I think, uh, uh, I think there is, like, an important difference in the sense of, like, I think there is, like, some scenarios in which, like, we get TAI, where, like, we don't get, like, a strictly speaking, AGI. In the sense of like being able to do like everything that a human brain can do. Like you don't need to be able to do everything that a human brain can do in order to like radically transform uh radically transform society. Uh, yeah, I think we should focus on like predicting like the minimal uh, the, the, the automation of like the minimal amount of transformative tasks with like actually change society. Uh like that's a smaller subset of like artificial general intelligence, but I also like fully expect that like in most scenarios like these two things come like Fairly attached to
0: one another. I guess it's like for the same reason that, regardless of what your definition of TAI is, you're going to get it roughly right because progress will be happening so fast once you hit it. That like for the same reason, TAI and AGI kind of become pretty close just because progress is happening so fast. And unless there's a fundamental reason that we can't get to AGI as you say it, like un- unless our, our algorithms just can't get there for some reason we have yet to discover, uh, it definitely seems like a like a plausible um, like a plausible scenario. Um, Awesome. Well, Hamia. thanks so much. This is just like absolutely fascinating, great overview of, of all, all your work. Is there anywhere you'd recommend people go if they want to follow this kind of uh, AI tracking work that you're doing?
1: Uh, absolutely. So I think that uh, the best the best way to find our work is in the alignment forum. There is a sequence called Trends in Machine Learning where like uh, there is an overview of summaries of all our work, which is a great entry point to everything that we're doing. And that we're planning to do it in the future.
0: Fantastic. Okay, I will. Uh, I'll link to that in the blog post that'll come with the podcast. I'll also uh, link to your uh, your Twitter account because I know you, you do a lot of you know some interesting like tweeting on this on this general topic and and in topics around this topic. So um, yeah, everybody definitely uh, check that out. And Jeremy, uh, I mean, thanks so much for for joining me for this. It was a ton of fun.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Have a great day.